Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's the podcast from Share Our Strength. We share the inspirational stories of individuals who set their sights on a problem and use their strengths to create solutions. We'll be right back after this. Recently, we launched our Rebuilding Series, where we talk to leaders from media, restaurants, education, government, and beyond to learn how they're reimagining and redesigning their industries to make sure everyone feels a sense of belonging. One of those leaders who's reimagining how cultural identity is taught is Kaya Henderson, former DC chancellor and education thought leader. Kaya recently founded Reconstruction, an online education platform that highlights black people, black culture, and black contributions to our country and our world. And we've got a lot of things to talk about. And I'm here with my sister, Debbie Shore, who's been a part of this podcast from the very beginning. Welcome, Deb. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks. Hi, Kaya, Hi, did, Kaya, did you know that it's okay to have siblings on the podcast? <laughs> Is it too late to reach out to yours? <laughs> my siblings do not want to be part of this conversation, I promise you. <laughs> You know, I'm so intrigued by many aspects of your career, and I feel like they're all so relevant to where the national conversation is right in this moment as we talk about education and its impact on everything from culture to society to opportunity and uh, economic growth. Um, and you're so steeped in this. And, um, I, you know, I want to start, as we always do, by just uh, before we even talk about the work at Reconstruction, uh, about how you came to be doing uh, the work that you're doing, like where did this uh, passion for educating young kids begin with you? Are there other, any other influences in your family? Uh, how did it all start? It's such an interesting question because I never intended to go into education. Um, I am the daughter of an educator and I thought my mother, who was a teacher and a principal and a central office staff member, I thought she was crazy for doing what she was doing, frankly. Um, and at the same time, I lived in a house where community service was mandatory way before it was mandatory in schools. And so um, we were cultivated with an ethic of to whom much is given, much is required. And so I spent a lot of time in high school and college volunteering with kids at camps and after school programs and really loved young people and um, I was totally turned on by my education. And when I was graduating from Georgetown with a degree in foreign service, I was watching all of my friends go abroad to help people solve problems in Asia and Africa and Latin America. And I felt a little hypocritical about going to help other people when I felt like we needed help here. And so I figured before I started my international career, I should do some domestic work. And when I looked at policy, because that's usually what you do when you have a degree in international relations. The only real domestic policy that was interesting to me was education. I figured nobody would listen to anything that a 21-year-old would have to say about education policy unless I got some boots on the ground experience. And so I joined Teach for America in what was then the third cohort in 1992. And I taught for two years. I taught middle school Spanish in the South Bronx it completely changed my life, changed my outlook, changed my trajectory. And what was interesting to me was I grew up about four miles away from where I taught, and it might as well have been on a different planet. I grew up in Westchester County, which is one of the wealthiest counties in the country. Um, I grew up in a very diverse community, 
with an excellent education. I went to a blue ribbon public high school. Um, I had all kinds of extracurricular opportunities, opportunities for exposure, et cetera. And uh, four miles away, my kids in the South Bronx had a radically different experience. Um, the South Bronx is, uh, or at that time, and probably still is, one of the poorest, most economically, environmentally, socially disadvantaged places in the country. And I had kids who were as bright as me or any of my colleagues were growing up, but they were underexposed, undereducated. Many of my young people hadn't been to the Statue of Liberty or the World Trade Center even though at the time that was just a $1.25 subway ride. And so I, I, what I learned from that experience was that there was tremendous potential. I mean, these young people that I taught were absolutely amazing. And with the right set of adults making decisions about them, teachers who would partner with their parents and families, um, folks who would make sure that they got to see and do things beyond their neighborhood, um, these kids could be as amazing as any other kids in America. And that, seeing that inequity up close, understanding that there was a pathway forward um, is the thing that totally changed my life and is the reason why I'm still in education 29 years later. And so, Kaya, before you got to the South Bronx, was that something that you kind of understood the way, you know, many of us would have come at the intellectual level or on paper, but until you experienced it for yourself, it just... Is that what changed everything, just like being there? I'm not even sure that I knew the depths of poverty and inequity. I, I, I knew poverty to some extent as a young person. We grew up poor. Um, my family lived in the projects for 47 years. But the poverty that we experienced was very different than what I saw and felt and touched up close in the South Bronx. And I think what I... What Teach for America helped me to understand was the systemic nature of this inequity. Um, I remember reading Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel. I remember understanding that this was not by happenstance. This was not because these people weren't industrious or hardworking or, uh, or didn't value education, uh, but in fact that the whole entire setup was designed to keep them down. And I felt like there was a way to do something about that. In fact, education was the only thing that I'd seen that could do something about that. And so I became committed. I understood the role that education played in my life. My mother was the first person in our family to go to college. And that allowed her to move us out of poverty and move us into the middle class. Um, I understood the role that education played in my life, propelling me to the, you know, what I think is the best university in America, which was Georgetown University, my alma mater. And I understood the transformative impact of education and could see a very clear through line to how I could use that to help other kids experience what we experienced. I was reading an interview and, you, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something about when, when the world, you know, the world can tell you who you are, but when you know who you are, and you know your history and you know your heroes, you have a different sense of yourself and a different sense of, of your place in the world. And I was just wondering, kind of in addition to, um, you know, the, the Teach for America experience, who some of your heroes and heroines are? Well, um, I think my greatest heroines uh, were my mother and my two grandmothers, um, all very strong women who had 
very clear ambitions for themselves and their families, and all of whom made it work kind of against the odds. And so I had an up close and personal experience with really high expectations and really uh, great impact. Um, I think along the way, my teachers were my heroes and heroines. I benefited from having amazing teachers in elementary school and middle school and in high school who took interest in not only my academic work, but my passions and my interests and cultivated those. Um, and then professional mentors along the way, I've had many. Um, and I, you know, I could tell you people who are living and people who are no longer living who poured into me along the way um, some of these values that you see in my leadership work, values around both high expectations, but what well, we call it rigor and joy, right? Rigor and joy that whatever we do is worth doing excellently and, and rigorously, um, but also joyfully. joyfully. Um, people who have taught me about authenticity, people who've taught me about the value of community. And I think um, through all of my life, I've had strategically placed individuals who have said something or done something or shown me something that have contributed to the leadership tapestry that um, I've been able to weave. Yeah, let, let's turn, um, if we can, to the mission and the work of Reconstruction, which is um, just super interesting. We'd love to hear more about it. So I am living my dream right now in that uh, I'm able to bring a longtime vision to reality. Um, for a, a while, um, I've wondered what it might look like to have what I would call Hebrew school for Black kids or Chinese school for Black kids. Um, I watched colleagues um, send their kids to um, Chinese school or Greek school or Sikh camp and um, wondered what that might look like for Black kids, a place where Black kids could learn their history and their culture, their literature. I was the teacher friend in my friend group. And so my friends would always say, what are the books our kids need to read in order to be strong in their Black history and their identity. And I think what I've known through my personal experience is when kids know themselves, um, they, they act differently in the world. When kids, have been fed a fed, a stead, when kids have been fed a steady diet of negativity about themselves, then they don't believe that they can succeed. I watched when we did curriculum work at DC Public Schools um, and included, we made sure to include all of the young people that were sitting in our classrooms in the curriculum, books that represented African-American and Latino and Asian communities, which previously had not been the case. And I watched young people engage deeply with their learning in new ways because they saw themselves in the curriculum. And I thought, what if we could do that uh, for kids, kindergarten through 12th grade, where they read a series of books that were the Black classics, where they were not only learning history and literature, but also learning culture and customs. So for example, we don't, many of us don't live near our extended families anymore. And so the recipes that we hold near and dear in the black community, young people don't know how to make, or, you know, I watched a ton of my friends teaching their kids how to play spades, which is a time honored card game in the black community, 
over the pandemic because their young people don't know how to play the games of our culture. And so we've been able to create about 120 different classes that are all reflective of Black history and Black culture and to offer them online so that kids, wherever they are, can take these classes. And we actually started this before the pandemic and had a big question, would kids get online and actually engage? (laughs) And what we found, of course, is they will. Um, But we paired this with another really important aspect, which is tutoring and mentoring. And so what happens in a reconstruction class is six to 10 kids are online in a Zoom room, um, having a conversation with a tutor who we call a reconstructor, who is delivering this, this curriculum, this content. And usually our reconstructors, many of our reconstructors are college students and recent college graduates. Some are sitting teachers, some are retirees, but they are all deeply committed to fostering a sense of belonging and excitement about learning for these young people. And our young people say they absolutely love it. Our student satisfaction rate is a 4.85 out of 5. And there's no there's no bells and whistles, there's no gamification, there are no you know avatars or anything. It's just great conversation with uh, our kids say they love their reconstructors and they love being in conversation with other kids from all over the country. Is this being promoted through the schools first or is that is that a gateway to this or is it strictly through the mentors and the, and the reconstructors? All of the above. Um, okay. Parents go on and just purchase classes for their kids directly. We have schools who contract with us to offer reconstruction as part of their school day, as part of their summer program, as part of their after-school program. We have community-based organizations, Girl Scout troops, churches, um, after-school programs that uh, work with us to provide classes for their young people. So wherever kids are, we can work. Got it. Got it. And and just one other question on this part. I'm wondering if some of the schools take, are some of these classes becoming part of the curriculum in schools? It's interesting. Um, there are lots of schools that want to make this part of the curriculum. I would imagine. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons why we made this an out-of-school time program is because having run a school system, I understand all of the, all of the obstacles to, um, to having a class that is part of the curriculum. I think we ask schools to teach 900 zillion things in 180 days and, you know, seven and a half hours a day. And I really wanted this to be a space where we were not competing with with other subjects that are important for time. I wanted this to be a place where we're not just squeezing it into Black History Month or into 43 minutes a day or what have you. And I wanted to make sure that the people who were teaching this actually believed in kids and loved kids. We wanted this to feel differently from school. So many of our young people don't have positive experiences in school. And so one of the things that I'm really conflicted about is, you know, schools are saying, this is great and we want this in our school day. And I'm saying, we want this place to feel so different from school that we don't. And so we are, you know, we are doing a little bit of both. We've only been up and running for a year, so we are trying things on, but our biggest clients are schools, frankly. And Kaya, with something as innovative as this, 
how will you uh, kind of measure success against the goals that you stated when you first described it? To me, that's always the toughest thing for an organization to do is, is define what success looks like. And with something so new and innovative, uh, what standard are you using to just for you personally to feel like, okay, I accomplished what I set out to accomplish on this? So student satisfaction is huge for me when kids like something and spend time doing it and express positivity about it. Um, that's always helpful. Because I am the former chancellor of DCPS, you know that there is a deep and, and steady dose of academics that's happening, even though a lot of young people don't even realize it. Um, and so the fact that they are engaged and positive about it is one huge measure of success for me. Parental satisfaction is also huge. Um attendance, retention, kids taking more courses. But really, my hope is that we will, we are piloting and, and experimenting with some different ways to assess kids. Um, I Part of the reason why I didn't want to do this in school is because I didn't want to pre-test and post-test and have a standardized assessment at the end. I want to figure out new ways to help understand whether kids are learning how kids feel about themselves, how kids see themselves. And I think we have the latitude to play around in the out of school time space that you don't have in the in school time space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, uh, when we, uh, any of us look back on our lives or careers, we can kind of see how one thing led to another. And I'm sure that was case with your tenure at, as chancellor of DC public schools. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about almost as if you were talking to a, a, you know, a Teach for America teacher right now. I mean, your, your trajectory from Teach for America, teacher in the South Bronx to chancellor of a, of a public school system like DC is, is pretty remarkable. Um, what, what should a, a young person who's just starting out think about where they could end up and then just talk about that job as chancellor? I've got to believe it's probably incredibly rewarding, but also one of the toughest jobs that anybody could have. Oh my gosh. What I would say to a Teach for America core member at this point is just do your best in the job that you are currently doing and the next opportunity will unfold. I never, ever wanted to be chancellor of anything. Never. <laughs> well, it was not even, was not even a, a glimmer in your it eye? It was not even a, a star in the sky for me. But with each, you know, I did, I did my very best teaching and that opened opportunities for me to be a recruiter. I did my best as a recruiter and that opened up opportunities for me to be direct. I mean, literally every single job that I've had, um, I, I don't think I have, I have applied for a job <laughs> since Teach for America. And what I try to tell young people all the time is don't worry about what the next thing is. Do this thing to a level of excellence that nobody else could do it. And all kinds of opportunities will unfold and come your way. That's such great advice. That's such good advice. It really is. So the chancellorship, while I didn't want to do it, um, and I might have said no 25 times when asked, um, finally I said yes. And it was honestly the most amazing experience of my career. I served for 10 years at DC Public Schools, first as deputy chancellor and then as chancellor. And it was incredibly hard, but I've never been prouder of any work that I have done. We restored faith in a failing public school system. People were leaving DC public schools in droves and nobody ever thought that it could be resuscitated. And now it's actually the district of, of choice 
for many families and at a time against a backdrop of intense competition from some high quality charters, um, DC public schools came back to life. And I feel proud about that. I feel proud that we weren't just focused on, on academics, even though we saw the greatest increases in, uh, in student achievement on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. I'm proud that we developed career and technical education programs. I'm proud that we created the first study abroad program at scale in a district. I'm proud of the human capital work that we did to elevate the teaching profession and pay teachers what they're worth. Um, I'm proud of the, I mean, I, like, I don't know. I, we, we did the thing. We did what people said couldn't be done. We turned around the lowest performing urban school district in the country. And when I left, it was the fastest improving. Five years later, it's still the fastest improving. And so I feel super proud. And anything, any, I was going to say anything that um, you wanted to get accomplished that you didn't. If there was one thing, what would that be? Oh, and there was there were tons of things. Yeah. Um, but I think the two big things that I wish I had more time on um, were special education. We mm-hmm. transformed uh, a, a system that was not serving our young people, and we were kind of midstream on that work. I think we could have been a model for the country if we had continued that work. And then um, high schools. I think, frankly, that the American high school model is outdated and needs to be blown up. And if I had five more years in that job, I would have created a completely different high school experience for kids. Uh, wow. Is, is it the kind of job, Kaya, where you're like your phone is ringing day and night? How do you, how do you avoid burnout in a job like that? It is a great question. Um, it is an all-consuming job and you have to set boundaries. Um, I was very clear, I'm a sprinter, not a marathoner. And so I can go for short times, but I need a break. And so my first year at DC Public Schools, I didn't take a vacation. And my team was like, next year you're taking your vacations as scheduled because (laughs) this is not good for any of us. Um, I also, I I was, you know, religious about taking a vacation every three months. My weekends were my own. And while that's counterintuitive, what you know I said to folks was, I need time for friends and family. I need time to recharge. And it's okay if I don't go to every football game or to every you know alumni association's 55th dinner. I need to save my time and energy for the things that are most important. And that was a shift because the chancellor previously or superintendent previously was doing all of these things. And we were rotating through leaders, you know, at unprecedented paces. I got to DC in 1997. And when I started at DCPS in 2007, I, we were on our 10th leader in 10 years. And that's not the way to make change. And so I set very clear boundaries. Um, I also was very clear that I didn't have to do all of the work. <laughs> um, and so I built an amazing team and empowered them to do the work. And I would say we relied deeply on our relationship with the community to help do the work as well. We weren't delivering something to the community. We were revamping schools with the community. And so that work was shared. I think the boundaries that you're setting that you're talking about, I think it helps you focus, right? I mean, you know, you, you were focused on the things that were most important that you could get done that only you could get done. And if you're going to every game and doing every meeting, you know, it's not possible. So 
very, very good strategy. Kaya, and when you look at where uh, we are in our politics today, um, and I'm thinking of the recent um, governor's race in Virginia, where, um, you know, the role of parents in the schools was so prominent, uh, critical race theory, which is not really taught in Virginia schools, was still prominent. Um, I'm curious, what do you think we need to be doing to um, build unity around the edu educational choices we need to make? I, I get concerned that there's almost more division or a trend towards more division, just like there is in a lot of our politics uh, that we're now seeing it even in our local schools. Um, how do you, how should we be thinking about that? I think unity is the right um, value. I think we don't really recognize um, how intertwined our lives actually are. And so we've created these false, um, uh, uh, these false divisions that make us think that this community versus that community uh, are the right way to go. Everybody is, I think because of the deep inequity in our society, the way society is set up, we are hoarders, right? I, I want to make sure that me and mine are good when in fact you and yours are better when you are working in community. We get more things done together than we do separately. Mutual benefit. I mean, we've actually seen so much of this during the pandemic. We saw people reaching out to neighbors and looking out for one another and being engaged much more deeply. And so I'm not, I, I, I have a hard time sort of understanding how we are sort of generally built to be, um, to be in community, but somehow or another find ourselves pitted against one another in these ways. I think people got to spend time with other people. I think people need to, you know, when I look at how we do housing and how we do schools and this is the reason why we're segregated. This is the reason why we're fearful of one another. This is why we're fearful of losing things. And I think every effort to bring people together and help people see the intersectionality of our lives is the only way. I watched the Virginia governor's race as well. And it was, it was just unbelievable to hear people talking the way they talked. And ultimately what you know is none of these people are bad people. Everybody wants what's best for their own kids. You just got to know that there's no way to get what's best for your kid without getting what's best for other people's kids as well. Kaya, uh, on, I guess, similar topic and maybe reconstruction, I would imagine, is, is covering some of this issue. But, you know, principals and teachers and schools are just under so much fire right now around the critical race theory. And I'm wondering if you could, like, just define it for our listeners and talk a little bit about how you see it playing out. So I think what is important to know about critical race theory is that it's a legal doctrine that examines the role of racism in our legal policies and across our justice system. And that's really important if you're in law school somewhere. That's not, <laughs> that's not what's happening in any school in America. I think what is, what is happening is a reckoning around how we tell our historical stories how we tell the full truth about history. And our full truth is our historical context is complicated. There are times when we were great and there were lots of times when we were not great. And I think there's a school of thought that believes that reckoning with our 
past, honestly, is the pathway to building a stronger future. And there are uh, there's another set of folks who don't want to reckon with the truth, who would rather talk about where we want to go or what we're you know no longer doing. And in the end, nobody wants to feel badly. And so I think there are ways we have examples um, internationally, domestically, around dealing with different things. When we look at um, how Germany dealt with the horrors and the atrocities of the Holocaust, when we look at how South Africa dealt with the horrors and the atrocities of apartheid, um, there are examples that we can take to deal with our complicated history. But I think um, we have not been imaginative enough to figure out how to do that in a way that makes sense. And so you just have these warring factions. Um, and, and I think, um, I, you know, my hope is that some, something will happen where we will decide, you know, whether it's a truth and reconciliation commission or, you know, whatever we, we have to collectively determine what American history is. We have to collectively chart a path forward for our young people if we're going to be the great nation that we aspire to be. But we're not going to get there this way. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I, I, Debbie, unless you've got one burning question, I've got one last question for Kaya, um, which is just uh, how can we, uh, our listeners, learn more about uh, your work at Reconstruction? Are there any ways that uh, people who are passionate about this can be supportive of you? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> to learn more about Reconstruction, check us out at www.reconstruction.us. And you can take classes while we are geared towards the development of African-American young people. Our classes are open to everybody because we know that there are lots of people who want to access our history and our culture, and we welcome that. And so buy a gift card for the young people in your life that you know need to take a class. Our classes are fun and amazing. So check those out. If you are inclined to tutor um, with us, sign up to do that. If you have an idea for a class that we should be offering, you can do all of that on the website. Um, and I think generally um, build bridges, reach out to people who are not in your community, learn their history and culture, in the same way that they are learning yours, I think that's the pathway to a better future for us. We've learned a ton from you as I knew we would. And uh, I just, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and for the great work that you're doing that's gonna benefit you know, all of us because as you just described, uh, working with this next generation impacts every one of our lives. Yeah, great conversation. Thanks, Kaya. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. If you want to learn more about Kaya Henderson, Reconstruction.us, and hear the other leaders featured in this series, please visit adpassionandstir.com slash rebuilding. If you go there, you'll find similar Add Passion and Stir episodes featuring leaders like former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, chef and entrepreneur Kwame Anwachi, BET founder Sheila Johnson, and John B. King, former U.S. Secretary of Education. And if you liked this episode, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, share it with a friend, or rate the show so that others can find it. At Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Whittle's team at District Productive 
and Joanna Weber of Papanaw, with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Debbie Shore, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of how others are sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, 